Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We pray that we would be amazed by the miracles of Jesus and that we would respond appropriately to them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've looked through Matthew's Gospel this year, I've, I've noticed something, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, and Bay noticed it earlier, he was telling us, Jesus does a lot of miracles, doesn't he? He heals the sick, he makes the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the lame walk, he cleanses the unclean, he drives out demons, he calms the storm, he even raises the dead. Jesus does a lot of miracles. But one thing I've also noticed I don't see a lot of miracles around today. Now, this might just be my um, Australian Western North Shore life, but I don't see a lot of miracles around. Uh, sure, there are some people who claim to do miracles, and if you give them your credit card details, they will show you a few. But I have to admit, in the vast majority of cases, I am far from convinced. By the time you take into account tricks and hypnosis, and peer pressure and psychosomatic issues, I wonder if, if many of the miracles around today are really miraculous at all. I find miracles hard to believe today. I'm sceptical about miracles today. And yet here in Matthew's Gospel is a big part of Jesus' ministry. So what should I think about Jesus' miracles? How should I explain them? How should I respond to them? I'm sceptical about miracles today. If I'm sceptical about miracles now, well, why not then? Since the so-called enlightenment of the 18th century, many people have questioned the miracles of Jesus. Uh, for example, famously, there was a guy called Benedict Spinoza. Uh, Spinoza argued that the natural laws of the universe, the things that you see happening, gravity, that kind of thing, they are, by definition, universal and unchangeable. And so he said miracles that supposedly contradict nature or are above nature are by definition impossible. He writes, a miracle, whether in contravention to or beyond nature, is a mere absurdity. Impossible. That's what Spinoza said. Later on, there was a bloke called David Hume. Hume argued that miracles might be possible, but they're very unlikely. And so this is what he said. He said... If you ever hear a story about a miracle, think it through like this. Ask yourself, do I ever see miracles? Answer, no. Well, ask yourself this. Do I ever hear of people who tell lies or make mistakes? Yes, obviously. So therefore, if I hear about a miracle, it's more likely that the person who told me is mistaken or lying than that the miracle happened. That's my experience. You should assume from your experience that the person who tells you is mistaken or lying and that he therefore argued that wise people should never believe in miracles. Interesting, don't you reckon? And with this background in mind, because this convinced basically a lot of people, with this background in mind last century, people then tried to reread the Bible. Uh, they knew, so they thought, that miracles are impossible and unbelievable. And so they tried to understand the stories of Jesus in that light. Uh, so, for example, there was Rudolf Bultmann. He said that, sure, superstitious, gullible people back in Bible times, they might have believed in miracles, but we scientific people, we know that miracles don't happen. That, uh, that mythical view of the world is obsolete, he said. 
We know that the miracles are not historical, so what do we do with the miracles in the story of Jesus? Well, says Bultmann, we should treat them more like parables, like, uh, like myths, as he called them. So, when we read about a miracle, we shouldn't assume that it happened. Instead, we should, and I quote from him, although he wrote in German, but translation of him, uh, instead we should, and I quote, demythologize the Bible to find the timeless existential truths within it which apply to our lives today. So, in other words, for example, when you read about Jesus calming the storm, you shouldn't think that really happened. There was no actual boat and actual storm and actual Jesus saying quiet. No, no, no. Instead, you should think about how Jesus can calm the storms of your life, calm the worries in your life. You see how it works? It's not historical fact. It's about what it means for you existentially in your existence, in your experience. Now, lots of people have followed Bultmann's example, and uh, some names you might have heard of are John Spong, that uh, American bishop, or Barbara Thiering, closer to home, a lecturer at Sydney University, um, or that the Jesus Seminar, you may have heard of the Jesus Seminar, they basically cross out any bits that they don't agree with in the Gospels and so on. Um, all these people argue that the miracles of Jesus are basically mythological, they put different terms on it, but basically mythological. Now, all these people say you can learn things from the miracles of Jesus but they're not real. They didn't happen. There's no reason to trust Jesus as a real king of a real heaven. It's more, like, it's more like learning from Aesop's fables or something like that. What should we think about the miracles of Jesus? How should we understand them and what should we do about them? How should we respond? Of course, this isn't just a post-enlightenment issue. As we've looked through the story of Jesus in the gospel itself, it's an issue that's right here, isn't it? Um, back in chapters 8 to 10, we saw Jesus doing lots of miracles. And then at the beginning of chapter 11, John the Baptist heard about the miracles and he didn't say, oh, that corresponds entirely with my um, pre-enlightenment uh, gullible view of, of, of history. No, no, no. He said, no, no, no. He, said, he had a question for Jesus. He said, well, are you the one who is to come or, or should we expect someone else? In response, what did Jesus do? He pointed to the miracles and he pointed to them in a way that reminded John of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament it said that when God comes to rescue his people, miracles will happen. They don't normally happen, but when God comes to rescue his people, they will happen. The blind will see, lame will walk, the deaf will hear. Now come back with me to chapter 11. Chapter 11 and have a look at what Jesus says to John. This is chapter 11 and verse 4. Chapter 11 and verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And then Jesus has a bit of a warning for John. He says, Don't fall away because of me. That word fall away, lovely little word, it's the word from which we get the word scandalize. Don't be scandalized because of me, says Jesus. So Jesus is saying to John, look at the miracles, understand them in the context of the Old Testament, and believe me. Verse 6 there, Jesus says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. He's not scandalized on account of me. So John the Baptist, uh, he didn't know what to do with the miracles that he'd heard about. But then neither did the crowds. 
They liked Jesus' miracles. They came from far and wide wide because something unique was happening here. They They were pleased to be healed and so on. But Jesus wasn't satisfied with that. No, no, Jesus said, wisdom is proved right by her actions. He wanted people to take action in the light of the miracles. He wanted to, people not just to go, oh, that's interesting. He wanted people to do what he calls repent, to, to stop running life their own way, to start living God's way, prepared for the kingdom of God that he was announcing. And so Jesus denounces the cities who refuse to repent. And as people keep on refusing, he stops doing miracles for them. John the Baptist wasn't sure. The crowds wouldn't repent. Then you get the religious leaders. And they had their own explanation for Jesus' miracles, didn't they? They said he was of the devil. Chapter 12 and verse 24, you can see it. Chapter 12, verse 24. The religious leaders said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now Jesus rebukes them. He shows how ridiculous it is. And he says, in fact, his miracles show that the kingdom of God has come. Chapter 12, verse 28, this is what the miracles mean. Chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus said, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Lots of explanations, lots of reactions to the miracles, and we're not done yet. In our next section of Matthew's Gospel, we see some more miracles, and we see some other ways that people try to explain the miracles and and some other ways they respond to them. So first response. First response comes from Jesus' hometown, from the town of Nazareth. Jesus goes there, um, he preaches and he does miracles and people are amazed. They don't know where he got these miraculous powers from. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53, have a look with me. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. They asked the question. Unfortunately, they never answer it. Because they've known Jesus since he was a little boy. They know his family. And so it doesn't matter what miracles they see. They're not interested in repentance. They're not going to turn their lives around and follow this hometown boy. And so Matthew says they took offense at him. And interestingly, that word took offense at, it's the same word Jesus used when he was warning John the Baptist, the scandalized word. Jesus' hometown, it says, are scandalized. And so they won't turn and follow him. Verse 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Uh, Aren't all his sisters with us? As we reflected on in Bible study, makes it quite difficult for Mary to stay a virgin all her life, doesn't it, with all these children? Anyway, aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. They were scandalised at him. These people are not interested in repentance. It doesn't matter what miracles they see. They won't turn and follow the hometown boy. And so... There will be no more miracles for them. Second sentence of verse, in verse 57. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own prophet, in his own house, is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. All right, so there's our first response to uh, Jesus' miracles teaching his hometown. 
They wonder where the miracles came from, but they never answer the question, and it doesn't matter because they're not going to repent anyway. Next we meet Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this man is the son of the Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. and It's an absolute soap opera. If you ever get to uh, read the story of the Herods, um, he's the son of the Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. He's the brother of another Herod called Philip. Philip was married to a lady. Um, they got divorced and uh, then Herod married that lady after he divorced his Nabataean wife, which started a war with the Nabataean. It's, it's an absolute awful story. It's a total soap opera. Um, Anyway, this, uh, this man also hears about Jesus' miraculous powers and he's got an explanation of his own. He thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. So this guy is quite superstitious. He thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Chapter 14, verse 1. 14, 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, of course, Matthew hasn't told us yet that John is dead, let alone raised from the dead, and so now he fills us in with the whole sordid story. Herod um, killed John because of his pride, um, because he was manipulated by his wife and stepdaughter. Herod murdered John the Baptist, verse 3. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. So there's a second response to Jesus' miracles. Herod thinks Jesus must be John the Baptist resurrected. But I don't think Herod's ready to repent, do you? Uh, Herod, I'm sure, feels guilty about John being dead. He no doubt feels threatened by Jesus. I reckon he's probably a danger to Jesus, don't you? Like his father before him. When Jesus uh, hears what happened to John, he heads off to a place to be, be alone with his disciples for a while. Maybe it's to grieve John's death. Maybe it's um, to avoid the danger of Herod. Maybe it's just to get a rest. Probably it's all those sorts of factors. But he can't get away. Crowds follow him like the scene in Life of Brian, wherever he goes, the crowds follow him. Now, if it were me, I would know what to do. Uh, I would tell them to go away and leave me alone. Let me have some peace. But that's not what Jesus is like. Jesus has compassion for these people. And so even in his weariness, fear, sadness, he still works hard and heals. Verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus works hard all day as the day draws to an end. His disciples realise nobody's eaten. It's a solitary place. The literal, literal word here is wilderness. It's a wilderness. They're out in the wilderness. People are going to get seriously hungry. Uh, the disciples suggest that 
um, Jesus send the people off to get something to eat, but he's got other ideas. He says, you feed them. Now, it's not like Jesus' disciples say, oh, of course, we'll just do a miracle. This is, we're only parables anyway. This is not history. We've, we've got a pre-scientific, mythological view of the world. Let's magic some food. No problems at all. The disciples are not expecting a miracle here, despite all they've seen of Jesus so far. They are no more gullible about miracles than you or me. But contrary to their expectations, Jesus does something amazing. He provides bread for God's people in the wilderness. 5,000 men eat, plus women and children, and there are 12 baskets of leftovers, a basket for each of all the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Uh, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to literally recline, sit down for a feast on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. The Greek word says stuffed, full. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Jesus sends the crowds away. He also sends his disciples off and he finally gets some time alone to pray. But soon the disciples are in trouble again. They're out on the Sea of Galilee, struggling against the wind and waves. Verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. The disciples are in trouble, but Jesus does another amazing miracle. He heads out to them, walking through the sea as if on dry land. Now again, the disciples are no more susceptible to believe in miracles than you or me. They don't expect Jesus to be walking on the water. Oh, look. Here comes Jesus, walking on water. Just what we expect from our pre-scientific mythological worldview. No way. They are terrified. They think this must be a ghost or something. Uh, Peter even tests Jesus by asking to come out to him. But it is in fact Jesus. It is in fact a miracle. Jesus joins them in the boat. They are stunned and amazed. They think Jesus is someone utterly unique. And he brings them safely through the sea. Verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed in the boat, the wind died down. 
Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. Safe on the other side, Jesus does some more miracles. And again, people don't say, oh, yes, he's just another miracle worker like the ones we all gullibly believe in nowadays. No, no, they see that Jesus is utterly unique. They, they come from far and wide, from miles around, they come to see this totally unique, unparalleled person and he heals everyone who even touches him. Verse 35. And when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Okay, can you see what's here in our passage today? Jesus comes to his hometown. They don't know where his miraculous powers come from. It doesn't matter, they're not going to turn and follow him anyway. Next we hear about Herod. He guesses that Jesus' miraculous powers come because he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Then we come back to Jesus again. We see him feed God's people in the wilderness with miraculous bread. We see him walk through the sea as if on dry land. He brings his people safely through the sea. And then we see him on the other side, healing people, who, anyone who even touches him. Well, how would you explain Jesus' miracles here? As I read the text here, they don't seem like myths to me. They don't seem like parables. In fact, if you looked at the very first verse, it was when Jesus had finished these parables, he went on. Like parable time finished. And if they were just myths or parables, why does everybody have to come up with some explanation for them? You know, this is of the devil. This is John the Baptist raised from the devil. Why would they be so amazed if it's just myths or parables? Why would they come from far and wide if nothing out of the ordinary was happening actually? And these people, they don't seem especially gullible to me. They seem to be just as sceptical, just as stunned and amazed by miracles as we would be. No, no, Matthew here, he's not telling us myths. He's telling us about actual historical miracles uh, as Matthew's friend Peter put it the same Peter who walked out to Jesus uh, Peter wrote this in a letter that he wrote I've put this on your outline um, right near the end there you can see Peter wrote this he said we did not follow cleverly invented stories when he told when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty these miracles they happened they happened in history in reality I know miracles don't happen normally I know normal people can't do miracles, but that's the whole point. Jesus is not your average person. So how should we respond? If we're not going to cross them all out like the Jesus seminar or pretend there's something they're not, like Spong or Fearing or Bultman or someone, what are we going to do with them? Well, it seems to me that we should respond the way Jesus tells people to respond. And Jesus has had basically two things to say. First, as he showed the, John the Baptist, we need to understand what the miracles mean in the light of the Old Testament. And then second, as he said to everybody, we need to repent. So let, let's think what this might look like with the miracles from this passage. So first, feeding the 5,000. How can we understand that in the light of the Old Testament? So Jesus feeds God's people in the wilderness with miraculous bread. Ring any Old Testament bells for you? Jesus feeds God's people in the wilderness with miraculous bread. That's the Exodus, isn't it? 
It's the Exodus. I hope that's what everybody was thinking. Uh, when Moses was leading the Israelites, you know the story, don't you? When God feeds them in the wilderness with the, the manna, the miraculous bread. What, what about walking on the water? Jesus walks through the sea as if on dry land. Jesus brings his people safely to the other side. That ring any Old Testament bells for you? It's still Moses, isn't it? Still the Exodus when God led God's people, when Moses led God's people through the Red Sea. Jesus is being like Moses in these miracles. The Moses who did what? The Moses who saved people out of slavery in Egypt. The Moses who brought people through the wilderness and to the promised land, to God's kingdom. With that background in mind, can you see then the point of the miracles? you see what we're supposed to do with them? Do you see what they, what, what they reveal to us about Jesus? Jesus is like Moses. Jesus saves us from slavery. Not slavery to Egypt, but slavery to sin and death. Jesus is leading us through this life to God's kingdom, not to the promised land of Israel, but to the promised land of the new heaven and earth to the new heaven and earth where, like here in Gennesaret, Jesus will heal all our sicknesses, where there'll be no more sickness or mourning or death. It's just like he said to the Pharisees, these miracles they show that God's kingdom has come. Jesus is the king who is bringing his people home. So what should we do? We should do what Jesus says, shouldn't we? We need to repent. We need to stop running life our way. Let him be our king. Ask him to rescue us from sin. Ask him to lead us through this life and home to the promised land. And in a moment we'll sing a prayer that does exactly that. Friends, there are plenty of shysters out there. It's wise to be sceptical about miracles. But it's, it's just different with Jesus. Now, plenty of people have tried to explain his miracles away over these last couple of thousand years. It was true in Jesus' day. It's true today. But friends, the evidence is here before you. I reckon it's convincing. The miracles happened. They show us that Jesus is king. He's bringing his people home. We mustn't ignore him. We mustn't be scandalized by him. And that we need to turn and follow him. Let's pray now. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you for our magnificent Lord Jesus Christ who has done these miracles showing who he is, our great leader who brings us from slavery to sin and death and through this life to the promised land, the new heaven and earth. Father, would you please rescue us from sin and death through Jesus? Would you please lead and guide us through this life? And would you please bring us finally home to be with you forever? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.